This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. As Israel's government takes shape, what exactly is the place of the ultra-Orthodox Haredi parties in Israeli politics? We'll be talking about that, the fact that it's very cold and a certain person marks a big anniversary. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast, and one of those Jews has marked a big landmark milestone moment. She, of course, left her own devices, would say nothing about this because modesty becomes her. But how many years exactly is it, Yoni Levy, you have sat in the most watched chair in Israeli broadcasting, namely as anchor of Israel's Channel 12 News? A little Hebrew-speaking bird tells me it is 20 years to the day as you and I speak. Huge event in national news in Israel, surely. <laughs> it's, uh, my son uh, described it to me this morning, Jonathan. He said, um, mommy's having a birthday at work. So <laughs> It's a work birthday. He's <laughs> exactly, right. Exactly. So that's what it feels like. Yes, 20 years ago today, December 15th, 2002 uh, is when I started anchoring the evening news. Uh, it was then Channel 2. I did it for five years with a co-anchor who is a man. He left, and then my boss, in a pretty unprecedented moment, decided that I should just anchor the news by myself. So that was uh, when I became the sole anchor of, uh, for the first time in this country, actually, uh, and before the United States, uh, of the the evening news on the commercial channel. It's been 20 years. It feels, it's Israel, so it kind of feels like... 90? 45 years. <laughs> but the, the, yeah. the thing is, a normal person marking 20 years at the very pinnacle of Israeli broadcast journalism would be about 70 years old, really, <laughs> or maybe 60 years old. But you're, you're miles away from that. So you, and I, I know I go on about this a lot, even when we talk not on podcast time. I don't get still how you were put in this job, the anchor's chair, when you were basically not much older than my children. You were in your early 20s. <laughs> yes. And projected, I mean, that surely for in Israeli news terms shook up the whole industry. No one could believe that. It would be like the editor of The Guardian being 23 years old. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It, it wasn't, I mean, I'm not sure uh, if they had more time. Uh, to pick someone, I assume it wouldn't have been me, to be honest. Um, but uh, my predecessor kind of left in this dramatic middle-of-the-night moment to cross the road and go to the competitors. This was a huge earthquake in Israeli media st- uh, standards 20 years ago. And they kind of needed someone quick. And I was uh, sort of up-and-coming correspondent in the foreign desk, and I had done very little anchoring of bulletins and things like that, news updates. And my boss at the time, the CEO of the company, said to me, like, oh, if I wish I had 10 years to wait. I don't. Um, so, yeah, that was that was the story. And you were thrown right into the deep end, right? Because that would have been during the Second Intifada, really at its peak. I mean, the country would have been looking to the news for, yes, you know, updates and information, but also kind of reassurance. I mean, you know, that role of being the TV news anchor in moments of crisis, the famous one is Walter Cronkite breaking the news of Kennedy's assassination. But even here, we know announcing the Queen's death, it's a very, there's an emotional connection between the person who tells the country the news uh, and the public. And there, and to have that from somebody so young, I just think that, well, and you've had it now for 20 years, but what that does yeah, for them, what it to does me for by you, now. it's a big I really thing. do. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, essentially, when I look back at those tapes, um, besides terrible haircuts, my second thought is just how much of an effort I made to sound and look older than I was, um, you know, kind of the sound, the, the voice going down a few octaves and trying to talk like that. So I made a, an effort. I don't know how much it worked at the beginning, um, but somehow somehow it did um yeah. and um and yay we're talking about me let's change the subject please yeah no it's your it's your least favorite subject <laughs> listeners to unholy you should know that unlike a lot of very well-known people yoni levy really does not like talking about herself this is outside the comfort zone we won't keep you there much longer because we have many other things to chat and talk about this week 
I was going to tell you that it's very snowy here. Um, Let's talk about that. Oh my, I had to drag you to send me pictures, by the way, because you I did do that. The thing British people do when they detect any embarrassment in a conversation, in this case, you being embarrassed about me bragging about your achievements, um, the, the British people, of course, default to the weather because they can, you know, it's like shuffling and look staring at your feet. You start talking about the weather. In this case, there's much to talk about because it is, I look out now of my window and even four days on, it is still looking like a Christmas card, a light dusting of snow on the treetops. Um, it looks like people go for different references. They either say it's, you know, it's Charles Dickens's London or they say it's a Richard Curtis movie, if you've seen any of those. London does look beautiful. It has looked beautiful this week. But perilous. We have been slipping and sliding as we have been heading out of our homes. But I know you had a very indifferent take to me on the fact that it is freezing cold here in London, which I hadn't thought of. It was a very Israeli perspective you had on it all. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Last week, we we spoke to Antonia Yamin, who's a correspondent and analyst uh, at Bild, and we had a really interesting conversation about the far right in Germany. And we met a day after uh, recording the podcast, and she said to me, you Israelis are, are living in La La Land. I said, what do you mean? You said She said, everything is lit in Israel. There's, you know, there's light, there's electricity everywhere. She said, in Germany, in Berlin, things are completely dark. And I sort of called you up. I said, how are things in London? Are they dark? Uh, and you said they aren't. And obviously, this is very relevant because of Christmas and and that lighting, you think about the fact that here it's still pretty warm, there's no energy crisis looming, and the rest of Europe is just in a completely different situation. Yeah, I always thought that if there were ever to be an energy crisis in Israel, the way it would manifest itself is at the other end of the spectrum, meaning a good day where there is 45 degrees centigrade heat and the air conditioning gives out because there's just not enough power to keep all to keep the aircon on. Here across Europe, the fear has been that actually, as we go into this you know, deep midwinter, that either the lights go off or people can't heat their homes. And that, by the way, is already here, not in the sense of there just being no electricity when you turn the switch on or off, but rather people's struggles to afford heating. I mean, it is so cataclysmically expensive. We have made perhaps the mistake of having a smart meter installed in our home. We did it for sort of environmental reasons, wanted to see how much energy we're using. But my God, the price, you really see in real time, put the kettle on for a cup of tea, wow. British reference again, and you see the meter go up, the rate go up there and then. Now, you know, we're okay, we can we can afford to pay those bills, but there are people who cannot. And The Guardian has been running for several months, the Heat or Eat Diaries. These are diaries written by real people often using just their first names um, for obvious reasons, explaining that their struggles and choosing whether to shiver or starve, as um, one former politician put it here. You know, that's the choice, whether you heat your homes or eat. Many people cannot do both, including people who never would have considered themselves to be poor. I mean, people in work doing, you know, relatively jobs that would have been thought of as as well-rewarded. I read just this morning that there's people who are administering the benefit system, you know, welfare system, guiding people as to how they can claim their benefits who are themselves on benefits because those jobs don't pay enough both to heat your homes when it costs this much and to eat. So, you know, talk of blackouts and energy rationing, that is still there as we look into January, February. It could come. But right now, there is a there is a sort of, as it was, you know, an invisible or sort of silent energy crisis. It's not manifest in, you know, the lights on the streets being out, but in the privacy of people's homes, people shivering because they cannot afford to, to, to pay for it. That's terrible. I mean, we, we were thinking, you know, we had this discussion before winter about the energy crisis and, and is it as bad as we thought? It sounds like it's worse than we thought it would be before winter started. Yeah, I would say so, um, because, uh, you know, there's all kinds of reasons. Starts in some ways with the February invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russia and what that did to energy prices. There's some recrimination here that, you know, Britain had a facility for storing gas, but it got rid of it in recent years, all part of a kind of austerity drive by uh, the Conservative government that had been here 12 years. They saw that as a way to make a cost-saving it meant that Britain went into this energy crisis much less well prepared. But then, you know, Germany, who were somehow, you know, in some ways prepared, are feeling it in the way that Antonio explained to us mm-hmm. and explained to you, you know, so there's, 
a decision. One thing you hear that is unexpected um, is that few people around the place, around Europe, are saying, you know, Donald Trump, you've got to bow to no one in how much you dislike the guy, but on one thing he was right, they say, which is he did say to Angela Merkel, what on earth are you doing making yourself, in effect, a hostage by being so dependent on Russia for your energy and at the time because it was Donald Trump saying it because everything else you said was so you know wrong they dismissed it but you know even a stopped clock is right twice a day and on that he was you know right i mean it was probably a big strategic mistake for western europe to be dependent on this dictator who has no compunction about using his energy muscle to has leverage against Europe, and it's the ordinary people of Europe who are really suffering. I know the Jonathan Friedland uh, train of thought is really desperately looking for something optimistic to say. So maybe at least we can, you know, cuddle up to that news story breaking this week, which is that U.S. scientists announce historic nuclear fusion energy breakthrough. Maybe, maybe that is the most important thing that happened this week, and we might be looking back and saying, okay, this saved. I'm being hyperbolic, but this saved humanity, right? A little bit. No, I don't. I, I'm so with you on this, and I urge listeners to go back to our earlier episode. Yonit will tell you the exact number when we interviewed <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell, who is the sort of um, laureate of optimism, the prophet of hope, and that's part of his sort of image and brand. But I, you know, he caught me at a moment of feeling a bit despairing, and. When we, when you and I spoke to him, I said, "Look, you know, there's so much to be worried about, starting with the climate crisis." And he said, "Look, the the climate crisis is essentially a problem of energy. You can suck the carbon out of the atmosphere if you have enough energy, and energy is about to be free, in effect, free of charge." And at the time, I remember thinking, "All oh, right, he's saying we will get there with solar and uh, you know renewable energy. That's what he must mean." And then, look, as my mother would have said, "Punk!" <laughs> right away. You get this well, less than you know what a month later, we get this you know scientific breakthrough that fusion technology may be there, to, which would be a free way to make massive amounts of energy and power, which is a very upbeat thought um, to take us in towards the end of 2022. But let's episode get 81 too much if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. <laughs> which one was it? It's episode 81. If anyone it's wants a, to come the back, the human and... database <laughs> has spoken. Um, but just in case you, you feel there's too much of a spring in your step, I speak obviously not for all listeners, you can just be brought back to uh, reality with talk of the emerging Israeli That's government. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> weeks and weeks have passed, but still no official government, but it's it's sort of taking shape, isn't it? So it has been six weeks uh, since the elections. The Netanyahu, Benville, Smotrich government has not yet been sworn in. I'm sure you're waiting to ask me, Jonathan, why is it taking so long? I guess by Israeli standards, it's not exceptionally long for negotiations, for coalition negotiations. But given how this homogenous group has formed, it, it seemed like it should have taken uh, less. I spoke to a very smart analyst this morning who said to me, like, they won too big, right? So there are certain parties in this coalition who kind of believe it's their dream now to fulfill whatever they've, uh, they've been planning. So they want their aspirations. There's a lot of tugging and pulling here. And and at this point, what we're seeing really is that there's a lot of pre-swearing in legislation going on and votes on different legislation going on. I think we should go through what they are because it's very important and also explain why it's happening before the swearing in of the government and not after. So I'll get to that point, but I think that we should go over the three different laws that are going to be probably uh, passed through the Knesset. One is the dairy law. It's named after Arya Dairy. At least that's the way it's dubbed. It's uh, It needs to enable Arya Dairy, uh, the leader of Shas, to serve as a minister despite his conviction for tax offenses. By the way, in two years' time, he will be the Minister of Finance in rotation with Bezalel Smotrich. That is the Arya Deri law that has always already passed in its preliminary reading. The Smotrich law, we talked about this a lot on the podcast. This will enable Bezalel Smotrich to receive the jurisdiction over two uh, defense ministry bodies. One is the civil administration. The other is coordinator of the government activities in the territories, essentially giving Bezalel Smotrich 
a lot of the power over what happens in uh, the uh, settlements. Finally, what has been dubbed the Ben Gvir law and is the most contentious of all of these, uh, giving Itamar Ben Gvir unprecedented power, not only as minister of police, what we would call minister of police, now we're already calling it minister of national security. Will he be actually, uh, he will be, or he wants to be responsible for dictating policy over police indictments? This is very questionable. I'm not sure this whole law will pass that is, as it is. I think what's important to say here is that all of the coalition partners are saying in closed door, behind closed doors, we don't trust Netanyahu to live up to his promises after the government is sworn in. That is why we are making it a point to change all these laws now. Um, rattling through all those, it becomes so clear the extent to which Netanyahu, despite getting the headlines of having won the election in November, is a prisoner of the right of his coalition, embryonic coalition. The, the very fact that all these moves are happening, that these parties of the right are getting their wish list, suggests uh, the extent to which he is um, their captive. And, you know, it struck me that his brand internationally, as well as at home, I think, is as a strong man. And yet as strong men go, he's looking pretty weak when these other mini strong men are getting to dictate his agenda, and I do wonder, it's a question, it's not an assertion at all, but whether that begins at some point to eat into his own standing, because his, again, his brand, his reputation is that he is a strong guy. And I just wonder if Israelis begin to see him being sort of bossed around by other people, whether that just chips away at his own standing. All of that said, those points are, you know, political process points in relative to the bigger point, which is, I think, all three of the things, almost in ascending order, actually, of the changes you've described are, to me, um, pretty repellent and cut against Israel's long-time boast to be the only democracy in the Middle East. If you mean by democracy, by the way, you know, uh, just having elections, okay, fine. But normally people mean by democracy a liberal democracy, referring to those institutional protections. And yet I think the changes you've, you've described there add up to a kind of illiberal democracy. Remember, that was the phrase Viktor Orban used in Hungary. If you are having a minister, a politician, in charge, in effect, of operational police actions, deciding who to investigate, who not, when to go in hard, when not to, a politician rather than a serving police officer, that is Orbanism. If you are having the civil administration of the occupied West Bank under the, in the hands of one person and a person like Betzalel Smotrich, you know, again repeating, I said it for you earlier podcast, a man who says he doesn't want, you know, new uh, Arab new mothers next to Jewish new mothers in the same maternity ward as the ruler of the people, you know, the, of the West Bank, including you know, which includes obviously a population outside those settlements. I know that the civil administration is a different thing and that Palestinians are under military rule, different thing. But making him in effect like a sort of Roman governor in those territories. And then finally, bending the law to get one of your pals. I know Derry is not a personal pal of Netanyahu, but, you know, a political ally. Bend to get round the law so you have to change the law to allow a convicted minister to serve again. I know I summarise, perhaps simplistically, but all of these things seem to me to be, you know, if we were writing about Hungary, we would call that Orbanism. If we would, we would say the same in other places in Europe. These are retrograde steps for Israel to be taking, and uh, I wonder again about Israel's standing uh, abroad and even Netanyahu's personally, because he is obviously doing what his partners are telling him and wanting him to do. And it has not yet started. We have not yet sworn in uh, this government. We should we should mention that again. I, I will add on to uh, upon all this the fact that uh, the long list of demands of Yahadut Torah, United Torah, Judaism, also an important coalition partner for Netanyahu, uh, our uh, friend of the pod, Amit Segal, our analyst here on Channel Twelve, published that list of demands this week. Some of them really enraging the non-Haredi community, clausing about you know not producing electricity on the Sabbath and intervening in the study curriculum of the secular education system. Now, I don't know how much of this will be left in the true coalition agreement, but it's very, very clear that the Haredi autonomy will be expanded in Israel, further funded by the Israeli taxpayer. This 
issue is something that will become a very big topic in this Netanyahu government. By the way, Jonathan, the only thing that can really be changed dramatically, Netanyahu himself promised it won't be in an interview to NBC. He's only giving those interviews in English, not in Hebrew. But that is the law of uh, return and an amendment to that law. We know that there are many parties in this coalition, this future coalition, that want to change the uh, grandson clause. That could actually happen. What the rest will be, we don't know yet. But a really contentious uh, conversation in Israel today. And the grandson clause being the notion that if you have one Jewish grandparent, that is enough to qualify as a Jew under the law of return. I've heard some people sometimes say with sort of bitter irony, it's the kind of Nuremberg standard. In other words, if the, if you are deemed Jewish enough to be a target for persecution and murder by the Nazis, then you should be Jewish enough to seek refuge. In Israel, that has always been the policy and uh, and, and coming into question now with the Haredim, which is a cue for us to have a conversation we've long wanted to have on this podcast. We've talked about Haredim in Israel and outside, uh, in diaspora, whether in you know London's Stamford Hill or in Brooklyn's Crown Heights and Williamsburg, but obviously, crucially, in Israel itself. We've talked about that group often. We've always wanted to talk with somebody from that community. It's been a sort of on our wish list for a long time to go bigger, more than just about this week's politics up and down, coalition, horse trading, etc., but about the bigger question of where Haredim fit in Israel and in the Jewish world. So who are we going to speak to, Yonid? Eli Pelé is the owner of Mishpacha, a media group and publisher of the Mishpacha Weekly magazine, the most popular Haredi magazine here in Israel. It comes out in English as well. He's a businessman, a social activist, also the founder of the Haredi Institute for Public Affairs, a very clear voice from the heart of the Haredi community, and that is what we're looking for. Eli, thank you so much for talking to us today on Unholy. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, you know, we want to talk about so many things, the workforce and education and military service, diaspora relationships. So I want to pick up by the fact that your magazine, and we should tell our listeners, tackles many issues that the Haredi community at times is reluctant to tackle. I think you were the first to actually ask about the challenges of the workforce of the Haredi workforce and the economic challenges the Haredim face in, in the Israeli society. So as plainly as possible, if I can ask you, if today there are about 50% of the Haredi male population, uh, they're a part of the workforce, if that trajectory doesn't change, how is this sustainable simply for Israeli economy? It's definitely one of the biggest challenges, but always what I'm trying to say, that the way to measure the involvement of the Haredi society in the workforce is to look at the households and not to try to divide it by gender. Because what we saw in the last uh, 10, 15 years, we saw a dramatic increase in Haredi women joining the workforce and taking into account that we're talking about uh, women that they have big families, six, eight, sometimes even 10 kids. So the fact that it can work, it's only because, at least by the Haredi society, their perspective is to trying to see in the household what's the best way or what, what's the most efficient way to bring the better income to the family. So that always when we are looking at the Haredi society, we should try always to see what happened, what's the shift that happened by the households. And I'll give you just one analysis. I think in 2015, the government set up a goal that they want to reach 63% of Haredi men and 63% of Haredi women going to work. And the surprise was that after a very short time, the women exceed the percentage, and now we're close to 80, 70, 79% of the women, and the men went up to 50. But if you will take the average, 50 plus 80, I didn't learn Liba, the, the curriculum. We'll but talk I about think that. The math, okay, <laughs> so, but the math comes to that we got an average of 63% and even more. Which means there is two lessons that I learned from these goals. A, that sometimes when the government is trying to set up goals, they need first to understand the nuances and the culture of the Haredi society. And in many cases, what I find is the government have good intentions, but they are missing a real understanding about where are the real opportunities. I think we should continue to do an effort to provide men who wants to go to work or wants to combine between learning Torah and work. I think this is the next opportunity that we should talk about to give them the opportunities to get the best uh, vocational training and the best opportunity to really maximize their potential in working, not necessarily by convincing them to decide whether they want to stay in yeshiva or to go to work and to build more a hybrid model that they can combine between them. 
But on the other hand, to understand that the main engine growth of the Haredi economy, and I think even the Israel economy, is the huge potential by Haredi women. And unfortunately, uh, the government is not putting enough attention to this huge potential. And I think this is where the part of the solution exists. Is this a case, though, where one solution then just creates another problem? And I'm thinking particularly of those Haredi women who are bringing up six or eight children who are already unbelievably stretched who now are also on top of that taking on paid work. And and I say this as somebody who lives in a Haredi neighbourhood here in London. I, I notice exactly this trend going on here. I don't see the women doing any less of the domestic work. I don't see the men stepping up and suddenly taking on the childcare, the cooking, the cleaning and preparing for the Chagim. The women are still doing all of that as well. And on top of that, they are uh, having to earn a wage. So you've replaced... One problem, which you know, we've we've that you, the figures you've given are very striking, but with a new injustice, which is a whole lot of Haredi women working what 18, 20 hours a day to do two, three, four jobs at once. So, Jonathan, I have you a perspective to uh, relate to your insight. First, from my experience, it's not really the case. The case is really the opposite. We find out in our studies, by the way, that women are able to have a real career in high tech, in other years, just because their husband is the secondary brand winner and they are allowing them to work and to take a career. I have in my company, 80% of the the employees are women and in top positions, including the editor of our international edition and and marketing managers and others and the CPA. But isn't she also making the chicken soup on a Friday night, that same woman? uh, I bet she is. We have to ask her. Uh, I personally love to cook myself, so I don't know, maybe her husband... (laughs) It likes to do it as well. But, but are what, men what, taking what, on some of that work at home? Absolutely. You need uh, if you you need your at least you're living here. So if you will walk in a Haredi neighborhood in the morning mm-hmm. or at around noontime, mm-hmm. I'll give you just one example. So you will see hundreds of men carrying a baby stroller and going, taking the kids to the doctor. Sometimes there is even uh, an, a debate in the Haredi society saying, is that Ideal if the woman is sacrificing to help her husband to sit and learn and he finds himself in a part-time position as a second mother, so maybe it's not ideal. So for sure, from my, from my uh, knowledge mm-hmm. in the Haredi society, I see that the, in, in most of the cases, the husbands are really taking a big part of the burden and helping their, their wives. But I want to address this issue from other perspective. We're talking about society that appreciates very much Torah learning. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that our role, and I'm talking about myself and, inclu- and talking about you and even the government, is to intervene in their uh, priorities and say, listen, I don't think that it's ideal that the women will sacrifice so much to support their husband to sit and learn. I think the women should stay home like in Europe and raise the kids and, and maybe we should convince the husbands to go to work. I think we should at least respect their, that there are mature people who can make their own choices. I agree with you that in some cases, the women, as usual, as usual the women are, they're, they're jungling between many jobs, not just in the Haredi world, and I'm always amazed and appreciate what the women can accomplish. But in, in a way, what I'm trying to say that by understanding the Haredi culture, sometimes these specific characters of the society bring opportunities, especially for women. We see women that without this, if their husband will take the main role in going to work, many of them won't be able to accomplish the jobs and the career that they're accomplishing today. But but it's not only a distinction of the workforce, Ellie. There's a distinction in education. You're saying yourself, you didn't study Liba, you didn't study core studies. <laughs> there was actually this discussion here in Israel right now. There's this a potential for parts of the Haredi community to study core curriculum and have the budgets equalized. Then Netanyahu kind of intervened and said, forget it, I'm going to equalize, I'm going to make the same, give you the same budgets. You're not going to have to study this. How can Israel remain a prosperous uh, first world state if the education is not at that level? Isn't that a huge problem that we're staring at? Um, with your permission, I would call it a challenge instead of a problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, again, we definitely all agree that uh, there is a challenge in the Haredi boys' schools. And the challenge is combined from two aspects. A, we have to understand that by Haredi, the definition of education or the main goal in education is not to prepare the kids to become an adult who can join the workforce. The main goal, how we can create a Jewish identity, how we can create the next generation of people who are devoted and connected to the Jewish heritage and the Jewish values. So this is a different language. When you are coming to a Haredi family 
and, and we know this is the highest priority for Haredi family to make sure that the kids are getting the best education from their perspective, which means the best education is to get and to raise, at least with the boys, the next generation of Talmidei Chachamim, so they understand that they are paying some price by compromising between putting the attention in Torah learning or giving them other studies. So, but once we understand and appreciate their perspective, then we can come and offer an alternative ways to complete uh, uh, what, what needed to be done. I think that there is no any rejection in general by Haredim, depends on the, uh, on the age, mm-hmm. but to, to give any complementary education. I see Haredi kids are going to take private classes in English and math. I see parents who are able to do it are making it, some of them are doing it in later, in later stage in their life. The question is always, do we expect Haredim to adapt the secular model of education, which the main focus, and again, I'm not criticizing, but I'm saying it's diff- total different language. You're measuring success in the Western education if the kids are uh, growing up and, and becoming very relevant to the workforce. Haredim are first measuring the kids, are they becoming real Jewish people who can continue to Jewish people. Once we respect it and we can work with it, I think there is much to do even with the boys. And still, we, we shouldn't forget the girls, 50% of the Haredi population are getting top education. Uh, uh, girls in the high school are making today five, four and five units, mathematics and English. And I think this is, again, where instead of trying to push Haredi to the areas that they less convenience to go. Let's first work with, with the willingness that already exists and that already can make a huge change for the Israeli economy and for the Haredi economy as well. So I, I get that and the legitimacy of thinking, look, people will pursue different paths and it's about respecting that difference. And I, I'm struck by your your notion that it's a non-Western uh, set, you know, set of expectations and metrics, and that's all great. But it comes down, doesn't it, though, to a problem of fairness or a challenge of fairness to use your preferred word, which is if paying into the national sort of coffers, the ultra-Orthodox Haredim are putting in, as I understand it, about 4%, 3.9% contribution of taxation, uh, while the non-Orthodox, non-Haredi putting in basically 87%, and yet those don't reflect the proportions in population. There's a fairness problem there, which is Haredim are able to live this admittedly different lifestyle with different values, which is wonderful and much more spiritual and not driven by the usual competitive sort of capitalist metrics. Wonderful, but but it's not fair because the people who are making that possible, who are contributing to the resources of the country, are the non-Orthodox. And in effect, the Haredim are, in effect, passengers on a, on a vehicle driven by other people. And that's not fair and it gets resented. I totally agree with you that if this is the case, I'm not sure that this is the case. I am probably, I'm uh, not part of the 3.9% of the people who contribute to the Israeli economy. You're As a very a business successful businessman, one should say. Yes, yeah. Runs, yeah, you're part of that. Yeah. Yes, who runs, who runs uh, a company that we have over 150 employees and running a family charity who gives millions of shekels every year to charity. So I think that there is much, uh, I'm not sure about the measurement, it's really hard to measure, but but in general, let's agree that for sure we should we should think about the sustainability of this model. And for sure, Haredim have no right to expect to say, okay, we want to live in a very modest lifestyle, we want to appreciate different kinds of education, but we want other people to take this responsibility. I think it's a fair question, and it's a fair challenge that we have to sit around the table and solve the problems. From my perspective, and I'm devoting my effort and my life to bring these kind of solutions to the table, and in many, in, in many cases, the obstacle is still to convince the decision makers to understand that, yes, we have to, instead of fighting about narratives, what education is about and who is doing better in terms of uh, poverty and, and, and economy, is to try to see Haredi society understand that the role they are not anymore a small minority in, in the Israeli society. And for sure, when today, uh, I don't know, again, you spoke about the economy, you can speak about the, just the school rate. Today, uh, 26% of the Jewish kids in the first class, meaning every fourth child in the Jewish, the first, the first grade in school is a Haredi boy. So you don't have to be very uh, 
paranoid or, or, or anti-Haredi to ask the question how the economy, and not just the economy, how the economy, how the security system is going to be sustainable with these numbers. So I'm, I'm totally with you in this concern. The question is, what are we doing with this concern? And there is two kinds of conversation in the Israeli society. One is, okay, so Haredi, it's about time that you will give up your values and agree to To accept and to adapt our values because otherwise it's not going to work or we are not ready to continue to support or to say listen we understand your contribution to the Jewish peoplehood we understand your contribution to the Jewish future but you have to understand that we have to create a dialogue and I think today I see more and more Haredi including by the way this coming government understanding that it's about time to take steps and to initiate different approach and different attitude but the way to make it happen is Is instead of coming or fighting about narratives is to try to, to come with your concern and said okay let's sit around the table and see okay with with the fact that every fourth child is a Haredi child how do we see the forecast of Haredi contribution Haredi I think can do much more than what they're doing today they can contribute much more than doing today and we have to find out what are the obstacles so the challenge th- there is definite in challenge of making course studies more accessible to Haredi kids boys and girls but But again, as I said, I don't find that there is a big barrier to get a Haredi who got yeshiva education to be successful. There is some areas that this, this lack of the, of the core studies is really a challenge. But I think, A, not everybody is, needs to go in this direction, meaning not everybody needs to be a doctor or needs to be a scientist. But there is so much we can do with Haredi taking their talent, taking their values. They like to be in jobs that not necessarily are making the best decisions. way to make money if uh, it's being in a job that they can really serve the community more in the welfare area more in the and we see so many Haredim are working for nonprofits and trying to help other people I think this is an advantage that some people wants to have a big career in making the, to maximize their potential to make uh, uh, enough money and some other people wants to be in the field of education and welfare and treatment and etc and, and Haredim can be a, a huge contribution to this future of Israel. Let's talk about, I mean, we, mis- we you know, mentioned the issue of fairness and obviously the whole issue about enlisting uh, into the Israeli military, a sore point for many non-Haredim uh, uh, in this country. Now, I-, I would, you know, I'm carefully saying this, Ellie, but I would assume that most uh, non-Haredim have given up on their fantasies to, say, to see Haredim in large number, Orthodox Jews in large numbers uh, enlisting. But now what you have, especially in the political system and so much power that the, the uh, ultra-orthodox parties have received in this election, what you see is a little bit like the loss of, I say, a little bit of scorn or contempt, right? You, say, you see Gafni and, and Golknop, the heads of United Torah Judaism, of Yaduta Torah, saying things like, half of us are going to the military, half of us are going to study Torah, or it's harder to study Torah than it is to serve in the military. These are things that used to be, if they were ever said, they were never said out loud. And it sounds like a little bit of the uh, Bushai in Hebrew, right? The shame <laughs> of it kind of left, left the building. Um, yes. F- first, I agree with you. I, I, I'm not comfortable with this kind of, uh, of uh, response and, and conversation. Um, I think that whatever we believe about the role of uh, uh, the Yeshiva boys to the future of people and the Torah for the future of the Jewish people, I think first we have to respect and really appreciate and do the best we can, and especially I expect from Haredi politicians to do their best to appreciate people who are devoting their time and life, especially for real uh, contribution in the army. And, and I think this is th- th- that's, that's the key for me, from my perspective. On the other hand, we can't forget the, 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 the environment of the conversation. And yes, after a year or year and a half, or maybe after a long time, that always... The yeshiva and, and the Torah system is under attack and always trying to see that even a boy who went to the army to be a jobnik or to do whatever he's much doing much more for the for the future of the state of Israel than a Haredi boy so yes the conversation is becoming a very arrogant and very uh, anti and I, I feel bad for it again I think that at the end of the day we should try to find the common dominator we should create a different kind of dialogue between the challenges that, that we're facing and Uh, but practically speaking, I think, and, and you need to mention it, I think that the, most of the seculars already gave up having Haredi in big numbers in the, in the army. But it's, it's much more complicated because in the past, I don't know, seven, ten years, when I have conversation with my secular friends talking about the army, so usually what I hear from them is the following. 
we don't really want Haredim to be in the army because we want the army to stay the way the army is today. And today the army is much more pro-mixed uh, uh, gender service and etc. And we're really afraid from the day the Haredim will take us seriously mm-hmm. and they will come with big numbers to the army because that won't be anymore the army that I want my son or my daughter to go to serve to. But at least let them do something for national service. And I think this is very insulting because if, if the conversation is really about the challenges of the security of Israel, Haredim will be the first one to join this conversation and to see what they can do under their limitations or under their terms to see what they can contribute. And I'll bring, I'll bring you an, an example about one of the efforts that I myself was doing. But when the conversation is, listen, we don't really think that we need you in the army. And especially, I, I once told the, uh, one of my uh, senior people from the army who spoke to me about this issue, I said, if you will, would come to the rabbis I don't, five years ago, three years ago, and say, listen, we see the forecast of the boys and girls in Israel, and 10 years from now, if we won't have at least 20% of Haredi boys going to the army, we are in a real danger. I can't promise you what will be the results, but the conversation about Haredi serving in the army, it doesn't really come from the need, okay, the army now is really facing a shortage of, of people and, 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 and the case is really the opposite. The army is really facing a challenge. What can we do with the big, the growing numbers of boys? But you Haredim at least do something. And this is an insulting for, mm-hmm. because Haredi believe that when he gives up and he sends his kids to yeshiva and a boy who knows that he can build his economic career and he's devoting his best years in yeshiva and to say, okay, yeshiva is nice, but please close the Gemara Go to do something that it's much more important. This is a conversation that creates a sense of, okay, so you don't really appreciate our values. And I think the key to have this conversation is, as you mentioned, we should face, and I think it's, it's, it's a mutual concern that we should all be aware of, looking at the growing number of the Israeli demographics, seeing the demographic changes in Israel, how our security, our defense is going to look like 10 or 15 years from now. Let, so let me, um, cause sorry, let me bring it um, crashing down to sort of d- more day-to-day reality a bit with the politics. And I wonder about this. A lot of people around the world have seen, I know this is not the political party that you're aligned with or anything like it, but, you know, have seen the rise of Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzalil Smotrich and the religious Zionism party. And I, I've had conversations in the diaspora where people are saying, this is a crisis for religious Judaism because these people are saying what they're saying in the name of Judaism. They call themselves religious in the actual name of their party. And what they say, what I hear is, where are the religious voices speaking from the religion saying that what the kind of, and Ben Gvir has been literally convicted in an Israeli court of incitement to racism, where are the voices saying this kind of talk is a violation of or deeply at odds with the Jewish teachings that, yes, Jewish young men are learning in yeshiva day in, day out. And instead, on the contrary, what this is, quite a lot of young, strictly orthodox boys voting for Ben Gvir and Smotrich. I know that's been an issue within the Haredi community, not voting for the traditional parties, but sort of defecting and voting there. But where is that voice of condemnation that would say, almost in, a, in the language of morality and ethics and Judaism, that this is really a kind of desecration, that's the word I'm looking for, of Jewish values? First, based on our uh, finding, we, we, we made an analysis in the Haredi Institute of Public Affairs right after the election. I also was expecting to see much bigger number of Haredi shifting from voting for the traditional um, parties uh, to Ben Gvir. We didn't see a big shift. Yes, in general, uh, Ben Gvir was very charismatic and got many people to support him, even from Kibbutzim. So some of this phenomenon also happened in the Haredi society, but we didn't see any special trend Haredi that wasn't, was different from what we saw in other societies as well. Now, I have to tell you, I know I, I was following Ben Gvir in the past few years. I saw changes in the way that Ben Gvir was even talking recently. I think that Ben Gvir... Uh, step in into a vacuum about the, the personal security in Israel. And I think the reason why people feel comfortable with Ben Gvir, because they feel that something in the Israeli system doesn't work well, especially after the, the, the crisis that happened with the Shomer Homot. People felt that even in, 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 in their cities, they are not secure, and not mention what's happening in the Negev and other places. 
again, I think that I, I don't, at least myself, I didn't see yet uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir is really doing things that uh, it's really, I can call them discrimination or racism. Yeah, sometimes he's a very populist. He knows how to speak. So I, I don't see why the rabbinical uh, leadership, and by the way, trust me, they have, for political point of view, they have an interest to try to criticize Ben-Gvir if they were afraid that he is doing it. But I agree with you that we have to be more sensitive about the way that we're speaking about our brothers and, and, and our Arab friends. I don't see that this is the main issue the Haredi society is facing today and saying, listen, it's about time that we, Haredi, will stand and protect uh, from Ben-Gvir. I have a different assumption about his role in the next three or four years in trying to create, and I think the fact that he's now entering into a real position and not to be just running in a television can make a big difference, um, and times will tell. Eli Palais, we really thank you so much for talking to us. It was a real eye-opener. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anita. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Fascinating conversation. So glad we did it. Um, he's a very personable, very fluent, and, and very good advocate, I think, for his community. Obviously, if we'd had more time, I'd have come back to him on this point about where he says, look, Itamar Bengvis so far hasn't done anything, you know, that troubles me, meaning, you know, since the election, that's kind of not the point. The point is that this man has a long history, a long track record of a conviction for incitement to racism, deemed so extreme he was barred from serving in the military, you know, and putting up in his home a portrait um, of Baruch Goldstein, the man responsible for the Hebron massacre in 1994. That's Bengvir's record. And therefore, what I was really looking for from Ellie was some acknowledgement that that itself, the history, should be deeply troubling to people of religious faith. And um, But look, really interesting to hear his mm. answers to that and to all the other things we put to it. Yeah, and to, to finally kind of hear from inside the community what it feels like and what it sounds like and what kind of conversation we can be having. He's one of those people who really knows and really focuses on that conversation. He realizes that the future of Israel depends on that conversation between the Haredi community and the non-Haredi community. I'm very glad that he uh, came on. Um, I think we have some awards to give out on occasion in this program, Jonathan. We do have some awards. I thought a nominee for, for Mensch would be the Speaker of the House of Commons, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, and also his invited guests. That's because this week, uh, on Thursday, actually, in the House of Commons, they had a moment of silence to remember, recall the similar moment that happened 80 years ago. It was actually on the 17th of December. 1942, when the then Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden brought to the House of Commons word of the government's knowledge of the Nazis' murderous plan for the Jews of Europe. He told them that we have reliable reports regarding the barbarous and inhuman treatment to which Jews are being subjected in German-occupied Europe. And he gave an, a, a very sort of sketched outline, provisional account of what we would later call the Holocaust. And it's all. It's entered into sort of common House of Commons parliamentary legend that MPs were sort of hushed by what they heard. They were sort of stunned by what they heard, and so eventually a Labour MP said, "Why don't we all rise in our places and have a moment, a minute of silent protest?" And it's it's seen as very rare because part, part House of Commons doesn't really go in for things like that. Doesn't often do them. This one was sort of spontaneous. And so this, you know, this week they kind of reenacted. MPs stood in silence again, and in the public gallery, looking on, were three or four British Holocaust survivors. Um, so lots of sort of love for Lindsay Hoyle, the speaker, for organising this and for saying, "Look, it doesn't. It's very rare it, uh, for the House of Commons to uh, fall quiet. You know, it's hard to shut this lot up." He sort of joked. But this time we're doing it. Lots of love and sort of applause for that. I would just offer this slightly dissenting note, which is the reason why that event is so poignant, that 1942 moment of silence, is in a way because it came so early and stands as proof that Britain, British politicians, but also all kinds of governments across the world, including the United States, even the embryonic United Nations, did know about the Holocaust and they knew early, uh, relatively early. 
the, this is always a landmark event that this happened means you can't say about 1945 we had no idea because two and a half years earlier end of 1942 the house of commons on the floor of the house of commons the nazi plan was essentially laid out yes no references to auschwitz that was not known yet or even gas chambers but the idea of mass slaughter and and you know those railway tracks to the death camps to Auschwitz and others remained unbombed despite the pleas of Jewish leaders around the world that would come a year later, two years later, two and a half, etc. So yes, good for the House of Commons for doing it. Mensch for uh, Lindsay Hoyle for remembering that key moment in Commons history. But it's a prick to the conscience, I think, of British MPs and British history that they knew and yet so little was done immediately afterwards beyond that very moving gesture. Agreed. And not only on British uh, history, also on other countries, uh, that stain remains. Um, okay, chutzpah? Yes, I, indeed. Lots of candidates, I would have thought. I, I, well, it was we, a crowded field this week, but we picked <laughs> the FBI that uh, put out data about a... Uh, basically, uh, they shared their uh, statistics on hate crime, and they said that there is a plunge, which sounds like good news, right? I mean, it's down from 959 cases in 2020 to only 396 cases of anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. in 2021. Sounds like good news. Just a little bit of a problem there. They forgot or didn't use, rather, the data from New York, 198 incidents, and from L.A. So actually not a plunge in anti-Semitic incidents at all. The FBI said that there's a change in the way that they count. So that's why uh, New York and, and L.A. weren't in the, uh, the statistics originally. But no, there is no, sadly, one should add, no uh, decline in the uh, statistics this reminds me, Jonathan, of, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, Donald Trump, after he won the election in 2016, but lost the popular vote, he tweeted, without New York and California, I won the popular vote. To which I think one person remarked, New York and California are parts of the United States. So New York and LA, two cities, very important in the United States. You should probably keep them on record when you're counting how many anti-Semitic incidents happened in 2021. I'd forgotten that Donald Trump line. That is so perfect. Um, you know, apart from all the states I lost, I won everywhere. Exactly. Um, so. It is such, but, but it's but, but it's exquisite in this context. If you're counting uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes, you've kind of got to include New York, New York, and LA. Otherwise, as I think one leader of a Jewish group did say, um, that the the data is. Uh, essentially useless. In fact, that was a, a scholar, not of a Jewish group, but of a human rights um, centre. So you know it, you can't count the you can't cherry pick when you're doing stats like this. So these numbers, I think, will be ignored, and people will look instead at the numbers for next year. And yes, the underlying trend, I'm afraid, does not look too good, even if you try and keep out the places where Jews live to make them look a little bit better. Although, of course, that wasn't the intention. It's just how it washed out. So look at us lifting the spirits of everyone during Shabbat. Yeah. I mean, we're very good at yeah. this, I think. <laughs> well, we, 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 but we did we did give people a little bit of cheer, didn't we? Remember, we have a solution. This podcast has brought it to you to the world's energy crisis. Long term, <laughs> admittedly, but that's a little bit of cheer. And you can listen again to episode, I think you told me, 81 with Malcolm Gladwell. Listen again to that. You could put it on a loop and uh, and just cheer yourself up by listening to his dulcet tones and his hopeful message. In between times, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are, Unholy Podcast. And you can put your messages of celebration and wishing happy 20th anniversary to my uh, for my terrific and esteemed co-host, Johnny Levy, who marks 20 years to the day the anchor's chair of Israel's most watched TV news broadcast. As, as my Jewish mother would um, say, it's time to get a real job, you need. I think it might be. <laughs> I think it just might be. Uh, happy Hanukkah, everyone, and we shall meet next week. We will. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.